Well, good morning, church. We are glad that you are hanging out with us this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me uh, to uh, that minor prophet, uh, Hosea. And so if you have your Bibles, feel free to be turning there. Um, and as we uh, kind of dive into this morning, real quickly before we jump in, I just want just, to spend a few moments just praying for our nation. Uh, as I uh, think about some of the events that have transpired, not only the last handful of months and obviously the challenges around COVID-19 and uh, the different viewpoints and thoughts around that, then this week we see uh, just things begin to unveil and, and play out before our eyes with George Floyd and the response to that across the nation. And I'm just last night laying in bed and my heart is just breaking at the chaos and the confusion. And in many ways, uh, the response towards hatred. And I think uh, in, in the words of Martin Luther King, we don't we don't return uh, the favor of hatred with hatred. And so I think just as we think through what it looks like for us to understand what God has done for us, and here's what I would say. Uh, Psalm 139 makes it abundantly clear that we're all created uniquely in the image of God, that we're all image bearers. And I want to just go on record as the pastor here at Stone Point Church in the heart of Van Zandt County and say that every person created is an image bearer. And I would say this, I'll go a step further, that black men, black women are image bearers of the king, and they deserve to be respected and treated as such. And I'll just tell you that uh, one of the best friends that I have on the planet is a black man in whom I love and I respect and I care for. And I know that I have had conversations with him, and I know that oftentimes just because of the color of his skin, he looks different and he can be treated different than I would or my family would when he's pumping gas at the gas station. And I would just say, hey, we got to change that. We've got to do something about that as a nation. But I would also say this, that when people are treated inhumanely or unfair, our response of hatredness is not a godly or a biblical response, and our heart ought to be grieved of that as well. And so, friends, I want to just pray and just ask God that in the midst of a, a, a world of darkness, chaos, confusion, hopelessness, that the people of God would be hope in this season, that we would be light and darkness, that we'd be salt, where it seems that in our world, it's losing its flavor and its saltiness. And so friends, I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in your living room. Uh, maybe you're in bed still and, and you've got a computer plopped up in front of you. I, I'm going to ask uh, even those that are joining us right here in this room, I'm going to ask you to do something that you've probably never done. And uh, it's going to be a little awkward at first. And I would just say, hey, bear with me because awkward is okay. But what I would love to see happen across homes uh, in this county is I would love for us just for just a moment to just get on our knees and let's just ask the God of heaven and earth um, to hear our prayers and that he would answer according to his goodness and that he would move in a mighty way across our land, uh, bringing healing and restoration, that he would bring light and hope and peace. And so let's just pray together, friends. God, I thank you for your holiness. God, I thank you that you are a God of mercy. God, I thank you that your ways are right and true and just and that you are perfectly good. And Lord, you tell us to not revile evil with evil, 
but you are the faithful judge. And one day you will judge according to your good purposes. You will judge rightly. You will judge judiciously. And God, everything that has ever been wrong in the world will be made right. Lord, until then, I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to be light and hope and salt. But I also pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to not take matters of justice in our own hands. That, God, that you would help us to live with peace uh, with all men as much as possible. I pray that we would desire unity. Lord, I pray that the church, Lord, would desire unity. God, if our churches aren't unified, how in the world is the watching world going to be unified? Father, we argue about things oftentimes even in our buildings and in, in, in amongst our bodies about uh, chair colors and about the color of the carpet, about uh, daycare centers in our churches. We, we argue about things that at the end of the day are just pointless. And Lord, here it is. We have big matters, life and death, eternity at stake. And yet the church has not resolved itself to be of one accord. And so, Father, I pray for your help within the local church. God, I pray that your people would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that we would be illumined to your ways, to your truth. God, that we would turn back towards you. That God, many of us who are wayward in this season, that we're doing our own thing, uh, Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us to do an about face, that we would repent, that we would seek restoration and help and healing. Father, we pray that also just for people who are living in rebellion and in darkness. And Father, the only thing they know to do is revile, to bring about hatred as a response for justice. But Lord, hatred is never a response towards justice. Justice is a demonstration of something that's good and faithful. And so Lord, I pray God that you would help us as a nation to be unified. Father, we pray for people in this country, black men and women who've been mistreated, But yet we also pray, God, just for officers right now that are good officers. And they have uh, been given, uh, in some ways, a bad name because of a handful of people that had made poor decisions. Father, we pray for officers that continue to bring justice on our streets, that continue to do the work of goodness. Lord, I pray that you would protect them, their families. Father, I pray that, Lord, that you would help them to be wise, not in their own eyes, but, Lord, to make wise decisions. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a black man in this day or what it would be like to be an officer in this day. Lord, all of them need wisdom. And, God, we pray for them. We pray, God, that you would help all of these people to be a demonstration of your goodness and your grace. And, Father, most of all, I pray that you would help us. God, help us to be your people. We need you. We love you. We, we want to serve you. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, thank you. Um, my heart is just grieved. I even thought about whether or not I continue in Hosea chapter 2 as a response to all that I've seen and heard. And um, I think it's wise for us to do so. And so if you have your Bibles, um, let's, let's begin to dive in. And as we do dive in, I, I want to just kind of title this message, Hosea chapter 2, A Reckoning and Reconciliation. Uh, what you're going to see here as a result of what we've been studying and reading in Hosea is a man who has taken a wife named Gomer, who, uh, in my opinion, humbly, I believe she was a woman who 
uh, married her husband, was faithful to him, but then went wayward. I believe that she was in many ways like Israel, orthodox in their ways, but eventually would go wayward. And she is a picture of who Israel would be. Meanwhile, her husband Hosea and the prophet that is famous for writing this, this short book, uh, he is a picture of faithfulness. And when you hear Hosea in his name, today I want you to think about who he is. And I want you to think about faithful. I want you to think about steady, true, strong. Matter of fact, we know that according to previous weeks that his name is one of which is uh, like Jesus or Joshua, which is salvation. And so we have salvation from somebody who's not faithful and true and strong. And so here it is, that's who Hosea is. But here's what's interesting. You also have Gomer, Gomer, this unfaithful wife. And when you start looking at her name, you, you wonder what it must be. Maybe her name would mean wanderer, or maybe her name would mean unfaithful. But yet her name, when you look at it, means complete. Her name means complete. Now, what's interesting about that is because she is a picture of God's people, a people in which he called out of Egypt and and into the promised land, he would say, hey, my people, Israel, have a chance to be complete. What he desired was is not for them to have a reckoning or to have a separation, but for them to have all that they ever needed. Matter of fact, when you think about them moving into the promised land, you remember the, the famous story and Um, that God would eventually uh, give them a land that they could overcome everyone and they could go into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, obviously, we know that it took them a while to get there because of their disobedience, but God desired completion for them. He desired to be their God, to be their people, and for them to sow a uh, a multitude of bountiful things in their time honoring God and enjoying land, people, and blessing according to the promise uh, that God had made Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and, and a few other places. And so as we think through this time together, I want you to think about these people, Hosea, faithful, Gomer, who could be complete. And Hosea says in verse one, say to your brothers, now, it seems that he is talking to his children and he says, hey, tell, tell your brothers that you are my people and say to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, what's really difficult to understand in verse one and the context is it's, it's trying to discover is Hosea speaking to additional children. Like we know that there's three named children that we saw in chapter one, but is it indeed that there have been more children, more children that came out of harlotry with other men and maybe Gomer has birthed multiple children and we only see the names of a handful of them. That could potentially be the case. I happen to kind of lean that way myself, but I want you to draw your own conclusion. Either way, he's gathered his children and he's saying, hey, I want you to know that like you are my people. I want you to realize that you've received mercy. But he goes, I also want you to do something else for me. In verse two, he says, I want you to go plead with your mother. I want you to go to your mother, Gomer, my wife, and I want you to plead with her. And then he says again, plead, like for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. What he's encouraging them to do as as children is to go, hey, go to your mother and help her understand the magnitude and the weight of this situation, that there is a reckoning coming. There, There is 
in a sense, uh, some consequences, and I desire to see reconciliation. I want to see repentance. Hey, go plead with her. Hey, get down on your knees and beg her to come home, because right now she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. So in a sense, he goes, there's a separation, a chasm because of her sinfulness. He then says, encourage her to do something. And so what is he encouraging the, the children to go and say here? He's, he's He's saying, hey, go tell your mom to, to take away the whorings from her face and her adultery from between her breast, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. So the idea here is he's going, hey, I want you to go and I want you to talk to your mother. I want you to plead with her about her infidelity. I want you to remind her that she is to be God's woman. I want you to remind her that she's to be a faithful bride remind her of our wedding day, remind her. And it would almost be in a sense of a husband in this day and time pulling out the wedding pictures and putting down, them down on the coffee table and sharing them with your children saying, hey, look at my bride. Look how beautiful she was. Hey, look at the great times we had. It would almost be like you pulling out the, the pictures on the coffee table of your honeymoon in the first couple of years of your marriage before children were born and just going, hey, remind your mother of the good times. And if you can imagine the emotions that many of us, even in this moment, have evoked in our lives, because we too have had struggles in our own marriage, sometimes it's important to go back and just remind ourselves of the covenant promises we made with our spouses. And that's what Hosea is encouraging his children to go to Gomer about and say, hey, remind her of the covenant oath. Remind her of the promises. Remind her of the betrothal initially with her father. Remind her of the, the dowry that was paid. Remind her that she was bought with a price, that she's not her own, that she should glorify God in our marriage with her body, that she should be pure. That sound familiar, friends? First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, that's the commission to the church as well, isn't it? That we would be God's people. That's what he's calling uh, Gomer to do. And he's using his children to do that. But what's interesting is, is we know that this isn't just talking about this woman named Gomer. That is also a parallel to this nation called Israel. Now, what's interesting is, is we know that the nation called Israel is a, is a depiction of who Gomer is, that they also have left the, their God, that they have departed from his truth, that they have wandered aimlessly, that they are no longer a complete people because they have scattered and they have, in a sense, done their own thing. And God says, I'm going to give you a greater scattering. I'm going to move you further out. I'm going to give you more consequences if you don't change your ways. And that was the pleading from Hosea to the people of Israel. Change your ways. Return. Last God strips us naked and bare. What's interesting is, is in Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophet Ezekiel would speak to the southern tribes and he uses a, a language that is incredibly helpful for us to understand. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen, but I encourage you to maybe use that as a portion of your reading this week. The prophet Ezekiel uh, is speaking to Judah and he says this, he goes, when God originally called us out of of, uh, of Ur the Chaldeans, he used our father Abraham. And when he did that, he goes, there was no eye that pitied us. The Lord says, there's no eye that pitied you. You uh, were left out in the open field. You were cast out. Nobody cared for you. In verse seven of Ezekiel 16, he goes, 
But God made us flourish. He's the one who took us as an infant and he's the one who grew us up. He made us flourish. He made us grow up to be tall and strong. He's the one who adorned us fully. Later on in verse nine, it says that God's the one who bathed us. He's the one who washed the blood from our, our bodies. So in, you see the figurative language here that Ezekiel is saying, when, when we were first called out as God's people, he's the one who cleaned us up. He's the one who took us as mere infants and he's the one who grew us up to be strong and true. He's the one who washed us with his water. He's the one who anointed us with oil. Verse 10, 11 and following, he goes, he's the one who clothed us. He gave us embroidered clothing. He, he put um, fine leather on us. He covered us with silk. He gave us good things. He gave us ornaments. He gave us bracelets. He gave us wrists and chains for our necks. He put rings on us. He gave us a beautiful crown that adorned our head. We grew, Israel grew under God to be exceedingly beautiful. But in verse 15, Ezekiel says, but the problem with Israel is that you trusted in your own beauty. You did your own thing. You thought you had it together and you went and you lavished your whorings, your lifestyle on other people. You became promiscuous in your beauty. I don't know about you, but can we do that as God's people now? Can we become self-reliant, self-dependent? Can we wander aimlessly in the wilderness because we think that we are our own God? And, and the tragedy is, is that can happen in our own lives, but it is certainly happening in the lives of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 22, he says, what's interesting, he goes, you became an abomination because of what you did. And you forgot what I had done and you were stripped naked and bare. See, the, the challenge was, is that Hosea is not only pleading with his wife, Gomer, but he's pleading with the people called Israel who could be complete, but they chose to trust in their own wealth, their own riches, their own ornaments. They trusted in their own little gods and they neglected the God that created them, who established them, who brought them out of the wilderness, who gave them victory over many of their adversaries, and they did their own thing. And God says, because of that, you are going to live in a parched land, verse 3 of chapter 2. In verse 4, it says, upon her also I will have no mercy, because they are the children of whoredom. He's talking to Israel. He goes, there's this now being passed on to the descendants. It's getting worse. Verse five says, for their mother has played the whore. She conceived them as she acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. In all of this, what's interesting is that God is the one who established Israel, but they look up and guess what? They're pursuing their own things and they really believe that it was the God of Baals and Ashtoreth that gave them their riches and their beauty and the things that they needed. And God says, listen, carved images, things that are made of gold, things that are man-made, they don't give anything because they never existed in the first place. But I'm the one who gave lavish gifts. I'm the one who gave you your beauty, your ornaments, your riches. I'm the one who provided for you. I'm the one who brought you out as an infant and grew you up to be strong and true. And you've departed from those things. And because you've departed from those in unfaithfulness, you are no longer going to be complete. 
And if you can imagine what all's going on in Hosea's life, he's pleading with his wife at the same time he's pleading on behalf of God to a country, a nation in the north of Israel. And he's saying, hey, it's time to repent. And if we don't do so, like there's consequences. And then God begins to lay those out. Look at verse six and following. He just says, because you've not done what God wanted you to do, he goes, I'm gonna hem you in. Like I'm going to put borders around you. Verse six says, I'll hedge you up with thorns. I'll build a wall against you. You won't be able to find your path. It reminds me of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which just simply says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him that he may make your path straight. But that's not what this nation can now say. This nation can no longer say, uh, hey, God, you're going to make our path straight. Because the Lord said, no, you've departed from my truth. You wanted to be complete in your own eyes, and that's incomplete. And because you're no longer complete, no longer will you have a straight path. You'll be hemmed in on every side. Your path will not be straight. And as you see that happen, you begin to feel, in a sense, the separation. That in some ways, God is about to divorce his people. That he is about to let them go. That he is going to encourage them to move on down the road because they are not faithful to him. Interesting enough, did I just say that? God is about to divorce his people. And the answer is absolutely. He is about to bring about a a reckoning for them that he is going to separate them. Matter of fact, in verse seven, it says, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then they shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it's better for me than now. She's gonna get to the point where she realizes and the nation realizes, hey, I've been with all these men. They don't fulfill me. They don't give me everything that I want. That's what the nation does. Uh, they have been with other gods, the Baals and Astrith and uh, foreign women. And they realize, hey, we have not done what's right. And they're going to return. Uh, later on, you're going to see that they're going to realize where all of their benefits come, their, their grain, their wine, all of those things. Verse 11 even goes down a little bit further and it just simply says, and I will put an end to her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all of her appointed feasts. In all of the wandering and the sojourning that this nation is doing, God says, look, I'm going to bring an end to it. And what's interesting is, is he brings an end to many of their worship and festivals. If you realize that what God has done is an interesting thing. He goes, hey, you're not going to worship me the way that you used to worship me. And in the heyday of Israel, back when David and Solomon were on the throne, uh, their, 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 their festivals, their feasts, their worship, their sacrifices were a really sweet and glorious thing. But he goes, the further you've gotten away from me, the further you've gotten away from those celebrations, so much so that I'm going to take them away. And if you were able to study your history, what you would notice is, is that God has removed all of those things from Israel. That Israel has not been orthodox in their country for thousands of years. That they have not done the things that God set up for them to do in the Levitical code. That they haven't been able to sacrifice since God finally provided uh, a sacrifice in his son, Jesus. They don't have some of the festivals and the feasts like they used to. Why? Because God says, look, I'm going to head you in. I'm going to send you out. I'm going to make your path cloudy. It's not going to be straight. Verse 12 says, I'm going to lay uh, your pro- production 
aside. So your vines, your fig trees, all of those things are going to be devoured. A matter of fact, in the latter part of verse 12, it says, I'm going to make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. So it means all the things I've given provision, the spring rains that take your crops and make them bountiful and beautiful. I'm going to take those away. I'm not going to provide for you anymore. Verse 13 says, I'm going to punish you. For the feast of uh, the days of the bells, when you burned offerings and you adorned them with rings and jewelry and you went after lovers, you forgot me. He goes, I'm not doing this anymore. All the things I've provided for you, all the ways I've adorned you, all the ways I've met your needs, no longer. You are not anymore going to be a complete people. You're not gonna be the wife of my youth. I'm a faithful husband you have been an unfaithful wife. There is a reckoning and now there is a separation and that comes to pass. And if you know your history, we know that in 722 BC, Assyria came, destroyed the North. Later on, the Babylonians would come and destroy the South. And we know that the nation of Israel, once intact, then divided, is now sent out. They're separated from God. And friends, that nation has been in despair for now 27 hundred years. And what they're wanting is, in a sense, to do their own thing. They're still chasing, even in this moment, as a country, an, an entire group of people, they're still chasing after their own lovers. They're still chasing after their own wealth. And in many ways, what the God of the Bible would say is it's all futility. It does not feel, it does not make you complete. But the question is, is what does our faithful God promise? What does he promise to this people? And if you pick up with me in verse 14 and following, here's what he says. But even though you're not complete, even though you've gone astray, even though you've done your own thing, he goes, there's a time in verse 14 where he goes, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. So God says, even though I've been separated from her for a time, he goes, I'm gonna bring her back. I want to reconcile, which is, really an incredible picture because God goes, even though she's not complete right now, the nation of Israel is separated. Even Hosea, though there was a separation from his spouse, his wife, Gomer, he goes, my desire is to be faithful, immovable, and I want to reconcile with my wife, Gomer, and I want to reconcile God to his people. And that's what Hosea has continued to, to talk about. He goes, God is going to speak to the nation tenderly. Verse 15 says, I'm going to give her vineyards. I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there shall, uh, there she, the nation of Israel, shall answer as the days of her youth, at the time she came out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you look at this passage, there's a lot there, but I just want to give you a brief instance and explain it to you. He goes, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to bring her to a place and I'm going to make something joyful. What's interesting is, is he uses a play on words there and he says, I'm going to bring her down to the Valley of Achor. Now, the Valley of Achor, if you remember a little bit about your Old Testament, uh, was a time in Israel's life early uh, in their um, conquest of the promised land uh, that they decided that they were going to go up against a, a little village called Ai. Matter of fact, Joshua in Joshua chapter seven summoned some of the people. He goes, hey, it's not gonna take near as many people to go and overthrow Ai. So let's send a few thousand people that way. You'll be, a, you'll be victors. The problem is they get to Ai and they get whipped thoroughly. 
AI chases them back out and uh, they come back and here it is, Joshua, the leader of Israel is going, what in the world happened? Like, what is going on? God has promised us that we're going to move forward, that the promised land is going to be ours. It's going to be a secure place for us. The problem was, is that after a victory in Jericho, there was a guy named Achan who decided that he was going to take some of the plunderings from Jericho and he was going to hide it in his tent. And so he took some silver and his gold and he buried in his tent. And uh, upon Joshua praying to the Lord, the Lord goes, hey, I want you to bring every tribe, every man, every child in front of you. I want you to just bring them out almost like a census and are going to go family by family, person by person until I appoint to you the one who has brought about this calamity, this destruction on you. Sure enough, it gets to this guy named Achan and Achan, lo and behold, had stolen from God. He had stolen from the plunderings of a previous victory. And guess what? God says, I'm going to judge you. And you know what they did with Achan? They took him out to the Valley of Achor. And they stoned him and they built an altar there to remind the people of God, do not test your God. Isn't that interesting though, that God would take something in the history of the nation that was such a time of despair and hopelessness and he would use that to bring hope and, and in a sense, uh, grace in the midst of despair. That's what he does. He goes, in the valley of Achor, I'm going to allure her. I'm gonna bring her back. Now, the question is, is, is that going to be without trouble? And the answer is no. When you're reading this, you might even ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what I believe it means. I believe what God is telling the people of Israel is simply this, is that there is going to be a time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah the prophet mentions that in Jeremiah uh, chapter 30, verse 7. And what is the time of Jacob's trouble? The time of Jacob's trouble seems to be at the end of the world, after Jesus has what I believe the scripture would point to, raptured his church, regardless if we believe that or not, what we do believe in scripture is that he's going to have a seven-year millennial, I'm sorry, that he's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and then there's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign. The seven-year tribulation, my friends, I believe is the valley of Achor for the people of Israel. I believe that's Jacob's trouble. That is when God allures her. He summons for his people and he goes, I'm gonna bring my bride who's been unfaithful back to me. She's gonna see the God of heaven and earth. She's going to have a rod on her back and she is going to be blessed by my presence and she's gonna turn to me. And I think uh, Romans makes it very clear that the people of Israel are gonna come back to their faithful husband, God himself. Matter of fact, you're gonna see what their response is. In verse 16, it says, and in that day, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of the tribulation, before the millennial reign where Jesus sits on his throne for a thousand years, this is what they say. You, Hosea says, you're gonna call me husband and no longer shall you call me Baal. For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground, all of them, I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. He goes, I'm gonna betroth myself to you forever. It's a re-betrothal. He goes, we were once separated, but now we're being reconciled. Friends, that's what God's all about is reconciling people to himself. He goes, I'm gonna betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. 
That's what he's talking about. He wants to bring them back. He's going to make a covenant with them. Incredible picture. When is all this happening? It's happening in the millennial reign. It means that beast will not uh, revile humanity in return. Like there will be a day in which even the beast and the creeping things, the the, uh, ground will live together in harmony. Jesus will be on his throne. His wife, Israel, will be no longer seduced. And they will say no longer, you are my Bailey, which Bailey is a a word in the Bible that could simply mean that you are my Lord or my master. But what they're going to say is you are my Ishi. My Ishi is the husband that God desires to be. In, in the time that Israel has moved away, they have cried out, my Bailey, which means they have sought after their own little gods. But he goes, in the seven-year tribulation, they're going to see their husband. In the thousand-year millennial reign, they're going to live with him in harmony, and they are going to cry out, my Ishi. God, you are faithful. God, you are holy. So what is God saying? There's been a reckoning. There's been a separation. But guess what? There's going to be a reconciliation. God is going to bring back his people and he is going to show his faithfulness. Friends, can God do that? Can God make things that were once dead alive? And the answer is absolutely. Can he take something that was a fig tree barren and not yielding fruit? And can he in a instant recreate it and make it a, a, a fig tree that's no longer barren, but now yields a bountiful harvest? Yes, he can do that. What is, can he do with something that's dead? Well, he can buy them with a price. He, he can make them glorify God in their body. That's what he does with us. He can save people, Hebrews seven twenty five completely, that if you trust in his son, Jesus, you can have a new life in him. God desires to make us mature and complete. That's what he desires for all people. And he also desires that for his people, Israel. And as you conclude this chapter, he goes, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will say to the heavens and and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and, and they shall all answer Jezreel. So he goes, they were once scattered, but now they are sowing in God's land a bountiful harvest. I will sow for her myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people that you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. He goes, Hosea, tell your wife that you will not move, that she can come back when she realizes that her lovers don't fulfill. And my friends, God has said the same to his wife, Israel. He has said, there will be a day where you will stop wandering and that you will come back. And just as Gomer is complete with her husband, Hosea, Israel will be complete with her husband, my Ishi, the God of heaven and earth, the God of creation, the one who created all things we see and know by him and for him, Colossians 1. And when that day happens, he goes, no longer will you be scattered, but you will be my people and I will be your God. It reminds me of Revelation 21. The old order of things has passed away and behold, the new things have come. Friends, we're not there in our Bibles, but we do know that it's just around the corner. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our time together. Father, we pray that we would look and desire to see your faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would help us to love you, to serve you, to proclaim your goodness and your truth. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to desire to be your people. And Father, in a day and age where you're using the Gentiles, people like us in the church age to bring about judgment for your wife, Israel, who has departed from your truth, I pray, Father, that one day you will lure her, that you'll bring her back. And we are ready and anxious for that day simply because we know that all things will be made right, that we will have a king of justice, one who uh, reigns victoriously, but also judiciously and perfectly. And Lord, what we know right now is that we live in a day and age where none of those things exist. So Lord, in the midst of chaos and confusion and despair, Lord, we pray that you, God, would make all things right and that you would make all things complete. Until then, help us to live for you and help us to desire to know you and to be known by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.